0: Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support.
1: So we're talking 22 years later, when I was helping a small nonprofit that I, that a friend was starting, and I was looking at her business plan and reading everything what it was about. And this is another, you know, Jesus touching my heart as I was reading through her plan. So much of it was focused on trauma, and just the way she had worded it, and It wasn't until that moment that it occurred to me that what had happened with Calvin was trauma.
2: That is Rick Loftus, who shared last time about the homicide of his infant son Calvin and how that event would send his life into a tailspin. But in that darkest time, he would soon discover God was pursuing him and it changed his life forever. This is the program Life Support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was Derek. a golden boy. All we can do right now is come Extreme together. domestic violence, multiple rapes. The purpose of this program is to help others know how to come alongside those who are hurting and suffering, and hosted by Paul Johnson, lead pastor of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Pastor Paul is no stranger to personal tragedy himself losing his first wife to cancer, and then suffering through the homicide of his 21-year-old son, which gives him a unique perspective and empathy for the individuals featured here. Once again, Pastor Paul Johnson.
0: We've had the pleasure on Life Support to visit with Rick Loftus, and this is an amazing story, and that's what we do here on Life Support. We tell stories to help you find a deeper relationship with Jesus through suffering and trauma, Rick, so good to have you back again today. Thank you, Paul. The part of your story that was so difficult that we learned a little bit about last time is the death of your son, Calvin. How did all of that come about? Uh,
1: My ex-wife and I got married in 1993, bought a house in 1994, and had our first uh, bouncing baby boy in July of 1995. We named him Calvin DeForest Loftus after... The comic strip, which uh, ironically also ended at the end, the end of 1995, um, the the guy Bill Watterson that was drawing it drew it for 10 years and he was done. Um, and his middle name Bogart was after the movie star Humphrey Bogart. And uh, my wife needed to finish out her contract at work; they needed her for a while, so we decided to find a daycare provider. I was in the restaurant business at the time, and. Um, about two months into the daycare process, when Calvin was five and a half months old, that daycare provider shook him to death.
0: Hmm. And so you all of a sudden had a incredible life change. You went to the hospital and found all this out and you had approached the hospital thinking it's just going to be one of those things that all parents do. Yeah. but It didn't turn out that way at all. No, it was
1: was very horrific. I went to the hospital and quickly realized that Calvin was no longer with us and we didn't know what had happened to him until a pediatric specialist uh, examined him and knew that something had been done. The daycare provider was removed from the hospital. And we knew that we weren't going home with Calvin. It was a very shock. I went into shock and just in recalling it, we were there for over 45 hours. And at one point, I went to the lead doctor, Dr. William Wheeler, and said, you know, what, what happens? What do we need to do? We know we're going home without him. And he said, at some point, we're going to ask you about organ donation. And we said, absolutely, we want to do that. And the team from LifeSource came, swooped in and just cradled us and took care of us uh, as the angels that they were. Um, and uh, we ended up going home without our bouncing baby boy. And on the way out of the hospital, my wife, I'm numb and in shock, and my wife looks at me and says, I want to have more children, which we then proceeded to do.
0: And for a long time, you just kind of lived your life. You kind of rebuilt things and had a really good career and kids and yes. money and Yep. And But you said that you repressed a lot of what was go- really going on, and you, you didn't even know that you were repressing it.
1: No, I didn't, and uh, the people around me could tell that I was angry, and a couple suggested uh, some things. Nobody ever uh, came to me and said, you need to get some professional help, and I never considered any professional help. Uh, my ex-wife and I both dealt with it on our own was barely talked about amongst the family or you know the in-laws or anything like that. And we just, as you said, um, having children, getting on with life, being very materially successful, my business was going good. Everything was great.
0: Nobody really wants to talk about it because no. what are you going to say? No. So it just kind of lays there as the elephant in the room a lot of times. Yeah. Or people just move on. As soon as the funeral's over, everybody kind of books up and leaves and you're stuck there trying to put everything back together.
1: Yeah, and I remember clearly many times over the years crying my eyes out over Calvin, and in the in that is the problem because I never went to anyone to cry with them or to share that pain with anyone. But that's the way I was I had been raised. I was pretty independent, pretty alone. Never, never really been taught the value of relationships. So I just relied on myself.
0: And it's obviously still very raw. And so I appreciate you being willing to to share this. Absolutely. So your life took a turn. You were very successful, but you started just kind of getting bored with things, and then what I happened?
1: got into the world of foreign currency trading. Uh, let's call it what it is. I became an, a heavily addicted gambler, who took, who at the same time was a heavily, heavily, uh, heavy alcoholic. I was drinking uh, more beer than a, uh, you could sink an aircraft carrier with the amount of beer that I drank in my life, and uh, so I would gamble away. Um, began gambling and it's funny when you're gambling I applied the same business principles in business no matter what business I was doing I always had confidence and said I can be the best at this and I was one of the better restaurateurs, I was one of the better recruiters Um, and so I thought I would be one of the best foreign currency traders so I just kept applying all those principles and uh, the crazy thing is that there there would be weeks where I'd have five trades where I'd win a ton of money And then I'd have seven trades where I'd lose a lot of money. And the bottom line was I'd lose more than a lot of people would make in a a year. And I would look at it and go, I'm better than this. I can do well. Classic markers of addiction. And I was completely in denial and hiding it from my wife the entire time.
0: You weren't a believer at this point. And so did you internalize this again? Did you know that what you were doing was spiraling in a wrong direction, or were you still trying to just plow through it?
1: No, I was just trying to plow through it. In fact, one of the mentors I had early in my recovery, um, I I looked at him and said, you know, I never thought that the things I were doing would cause this or would cause me to go to prison or would cause this or that or the other thing. And this man looked at me and swore, and he said, you know, Rick, If you had thought of it at the time, you would have just brushed it right over or ignored it in the Mm -hmm. state you were in. So that summarizes exactly who I was at that time. And I was just driven by the fact that I've always succeeded in the past. I will succeed at this. I can't can't fail at this.
0: So what was the breaking point? Where did it all of a sudden start to come apart?
1: I was so wrapped up in my own problem and my own solution to my problem, and my thinking was so skewed, this is going to sound crazy to you, but when we had only a a few thousand dollars left in the bank account after having many, many, many times that amount of money, um, one night I packed up my truck, my Tahoe, and I just left. I was thinking, this is about to crash and burn. so I'm going to just desert my family. I'm going to leave. I'm going to run away. And then all the people around Mallory are going to go, oh, poor Mallory, Rick, deserted here. Um, let's help her. Let's fix everything for her. The flaw in my thinking there, one of the many flaws, was that everybody that had any money, I had already borrowed money from them and conned them and swindled them out of their money. So they, they had love and support to give Mallory and the kids, but they had no financial help to give them. So, and I took off uh in June of 2008 and just left and left them on their own. They didn't know where I was. They didn't know if I was alive or dead.
0: What was your spiritual journey like at this point?
1: As dark as it could possibly be. Satan had to be thinking, "I got you. I don't even need to worry about you. I've got you so much. You're on the path I need you to be. You've destroyed lives. You're going to die at some point because you're still drinking." like a banshee, and I don't have to worry, but he had his... And, and there was no sense of God or reaching out for help or anything like that.
0: Do you, you look back on that period and, and think, Lord, how did you save me? <laughs> I mean, why am I still here?
1: Yeah, uh, I know now, but um, I frequently have memories of touch points throughout my entire 63 years of my life and realize the hundreds, thousands of times that Jesus has been tapping me on the shoulder, saying, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And, you know, keeping me out of a fix or getting me out of a scrape or something supernatural happening when he literally was tapping me on the shoulder and all I could do is, you know, leave me alone, go away, don't touch me.
0: That's a great message for people that may think just because they're not understanding God or they're not feeling God or God seems to be distant that God is still very much involved all of the time you didn't even know it at that point, no. but now you look back and you say, "Wow, God was in this whole thing
1: he was he's relentless it's he's we have a relentless God, and it's it I don't know the answer to it, but puny humans that we are, we can block him anytime we want you know i can He can grab me by the throat and I can pull his hands away, saying, "Nope, i don't want you and i don't even that's part of the mystery, I guess, but no i um, I don't look back on any of those touches throughout my life when Jesus was reaching for me with regret because I'm just one of those stubborn guys that took a couple thousand of them to finally go, yeah, you got me. I'm yours.
0: And if you're listening right now, you may be thinking there's no hope, but there is hope. And that's one of the reasons we're here on Life Support is to show that there's hope through Christ. And I'm speaking with Rick Loftus, who now you're coming to grips with gambling, with drinking, you're grieving the loss of your son, but you're not even sure that you are. You take off, you're on you're on some kind of journey somewhere. What happens next?
1: I'm in Atlanta. It's uh four, five months later from the time I left my family and in the same decision making process that's so insane um that made me leave, I called my wife and I said, Hey Mallory, it's Rick, how are you? And she was speechless. And I said, Is everything okay? And she, I will never forget what she said to me. She goes, I would just as soon shoot you as look at you, but you're the best dad I've ever known. So I got in a van that um, somebody stole that I bought for a couple hundred bucks and drove back up to Minneapolis. Wow. Expecting that I was just going to walk right back into their lives. Um Turns out there was a couple of people in the Minneapolis Police Department that were very interested in speaking to me about my financial activities and swindling all of my relatives. And upon doing that, it became clear to me that Mallory didn't want anything to do with me. And in my own delusion that I was living at this time, I thought I was just going to come right back into the house. That's where I was going to be staying. We were going to fix everything, make it better. I was looking for a job. And I knew that that wasn't going to happen. And here's one of the big touches from God. the van, which was registered as stolen, was picked up by the Bloomington police, and they pulled me over, confiscated the van, and gave me to the Richfield police, who were going to take me to jail. And as I'm in the back seat of the car, the policeman looks up in the rearview mirror and goes, where do you want to go? And after the third time him asking me this, I go, why don't you take me over to the Home Depot over on uh, 66 M Cedar. He dropped me off there, I made some phone calls. Finally, a woman said, listen, mister, if you're a single man with no wife or kids that is looking for shelter, the only place that's going to take you is the Salvation Army Harbor Light. I go, okay, I didn't know that. Get out, Walk up to a bus, and I asked the bus driver, I said, do you go to the Salvation Army in downtown? Thinking that, and he goes, yeah, I go right by it. Well, the Salvation Army that he went by was the Salvation Army ARC, which is the Adult Rehabilitation Center. It's not the Harbor Light, the flop hmm. house where you go, you know, so you can keep drinking. So that began my journey. So there's God going, you're going to this salvation room not that one. And I walked into that place. And from the instant I walk in, walked in was the first time I realized that God was controlling what was, go- what was going on with me.
0: And he hadn't was- given up on you. No.
1: No, he refuses to give up on you no matter mm-hmm. what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And when you realize... The reason he doesn't give up on on you is because he's got something in mind for you to do, to take all these horrible experiences, and perhaps be the guy that the preacher calls, who needs to talk to somebody because you've been through the same thing. It's it's incredible the realization, and that was on uh, November seventh, two thousand and eight, is when I went to the Salvation Army Adult Rehabilitation Center in Minneapolis. And that's that's
0: really amazing. There. Are always consequences to our actions but there's also redemption and God is in the business of
2: redemption we'll return to this conversation in just a moment but we want to remind you that you are listening to life support a co-production of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka Minnesota and five stone media here is five stone media executive director and co-founder Steve Johnson
0: thank you Veronica Five Stone Media is hosting several upcoming life support conferences, providing practical tools and resources for church leaders and staff, and featuring survivors, therapists, and pastors. If you are interested, please reach out to us on our website at www.FiveStoneMedia.com. Well, our guests today and our host share a similar experience in their lives the tragic, sudden loss of a child. And now let's return to the conversation of hope with Rick Loftus and Pastor Paul Johnson. And he's in the process here in your story in 2008 of redeeming just a disastrous situation. Yeah. So how did, how did you see him work next in this situation?
1: Um, one of the more, if somebody had told me this story, um, even a, a year before it happened, I would have just said, too new age, too woo woo for me. <laughs> um, it's a Salvation Army, it's a, a work therapy based program. And I was working in a clothing room. So you work 40 hours a week. In exchange for that, you get a bed, you get room and board, and there's a treatment program available. You know, spiritually based treatment program to help with your alcoholism, addiction, gambling, whatever it may be. And I'm working in a clothing room where, and at this point, I've heard enough about spiritual warfare. I'm three weeks into it, and I'm going, you know, the spiritual warfare, now that I know what it is, I'm going, I'm strong, I'm going to be a soldier for God. And I'm just, you know, and again, I'm just lip servicing the whole God thing in every treatment class that I'm in, speaking well because that's what I've done my whole life. And all these guys are going, you don't belong here, what are you doing here? And I'm in the class, and I'm convinced that I'm going to be a general in the Army for God in the spiritual <laughs> warfare. And nothing's <laughs> happening because I'm still just wrecked. Mentally, I'm tired, Mm -hmm. I'm angry, and all these people around me talking about all this goodness. And I'm in a Christian treatment center, and my recurring thought is, stop shoving Jesus down my throat. So on the third Friday, when we're cleaning up in the clothing room, I'm standing at a table eight hours a day, pulling stuff out of this big gaylord to determine if it's saleable enough to be folded and hung up and sold in the thrift stores. You know, reaching into those gaylords and pulling out dirty diapers and things like that, and... Well, the whole time I'm filled with arrogance going, I could run this place. I don't need to be. This is so demeaning. Why do you have me standing here doing this when I could run this place? And as we're cleaning up, it's a very close aisle behind me. And somebody walked behind me and shoved me in the back. And I was turning around just ready to get in a fist fight. And I turned around and no one was there. And God spoke to me. And the way that God speaks to me is that it's not an audible voice. Um, I just had this overwhelming sense of knowing something that's just happened. And I had this physical sensation of being pushed between the shoulder blades and God said to me, I'm cleaning you out. And I realized in that heartbeat that the approach I was taking was all wrong. And he had a different approach. So that's the closest I can tell you the moment that my surrender happened. I didn't recognize it at that at that point. But I suddenly understood that the darkness and the evil and the the habits and everything else and the human flesh part of me that had been built up so much over fifty two years at that point, um, required a little bit of cleaning out that I could sit down on this spiritual warfare stuff and God had work to do.
0: Yeah, and it's amazing that it was God again that initiated that change because you're thinking I don't belong here. You have Salvation Army officers that are probably looking at each other going, it's another one of these. Yep. <laughs> and then it's God in his pursuit of yeah. you yeah. that again takes the initiative to get your attention.
1: Yeah, and it was so um, unreal. I, I, I can't tell you how many times over the next four months, standing in that clothing room, that I'd always turn around. And look to see if it was <laughs> behind me. I don't know if he wanted to. I wanted to get shoved by him again or whatever, and I'd be disappointed if it was an actual human shoving me. But that was that was a big deal. It was a very big incident.
0: When that moment happened, was it really clear to you immediately that all of a sudden the light went on and you went, "Oh no, I am really here. I need to be here. I am a mess." Or was that still a process that you had to go through?
1: Instantaneous, mm-hmm. and the evidence of that was that. Dozens of men, friends and people that I knew, over the course of that Friday through Saturday and Sunday, guys would look at me and their comment was, whoa, what happened to you? So something in my demeanor, something in my countenance changed in that instant. And I I now realize that that it was gratitude, Mm -hmm. that I surrender and gratitude. It's like the relief of realizing that I don't have to do this by myself. I don't have to do this alone. And... The first introduction to the possibility that maybe I wasn't the one in control was a big deal then. <laughs> yeah, well that's, <laughs> that took a that's lot an
0: important moment for all of us. And I yeah. think God is pretty good at reminding us of that because when we think with that, we get ourselves in trouble in a hurry. Yeah. But were you at this point, would you say, a believer yet? No. Absolutely this not. This was calling. just a wake up call. Yeah. And yeah. God was calling you to himself, but you weren't there yet.
1: No. Um in fact the uh my course through, I've been sober for 11 years, and I frequently say to guys that I work with and that I mentor, I said, if somebody offered to sell you my sobriety for a quarter, don't pay for it. It's not worth it. And I would my fondest desire is to compress that 11 years for other men that I try to help. Um, I spent the first three years in AA. Um, subscribing to the anonymous higher power god cuz god knew how stubborn i was. Love this idea of god, love this idea of someone internally helping me, but the the word jesus didn't roll off my tongue at all. And his plan was i'm going to introduce you to me as the anonymous higher power god, get you comfortable with god, and after a few years i'm going to introduce you to my son. But so i spent a solid 3 years drinking the Kool-Aid of AA, and i don't mean to speak poorly of them, but that anonymous higher power god was good for starters but it's not good enough in the long term.
0: Why isn't it good enough?
1: Because I I think I think a person you have to name your God. If you're gonna have a personal relationship with somebody, imagine having a you know, calling your wife wife all the time instead of Joanne or Mallory or Susie or something like that. Or a woman.
0: That doesn't woman. work yeah, very well go. either. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's not that the best game, thing to yeah, do. Yeah, that's
1: kind of insulting. So, <laughs> um I think it's very important to mm-hmm. I frequently say to guys I say I'm not going to I'll never tell you who your god should be has to be needs to be, but you're sure second to find out who my god is. And if you come near the pool, you're going to get wet. And they quickly find out that his name is Jesus and the personal relationship that I have with him is is everything in my life today.
0: But he used the structure of AA and he used the the, the, the well-thought-out treatment that they yeah. embark on to really yeah. get you started in that direction, and that's yes I a spent, great first step for you.
1: Thank you, and I, I spent the first three years of my sobriety sponsoring men in the 12 Steps of AA, and I still advocate that for men. I've even walked guys through the 12 Steps of AA, and I say, by the way, in the big book when it gets to higher power, all the creative terms that they use, my book has Jesus Christ printed in it. And the guys are always wanting to look in my book to see if I'm making it. So that, yeah. so I'll do it. But it's got to be with Jesus Christ as the higher power.
0: Yeah, and I bet you've had a chance to work with a lot of guys and feed into a lot of men through there is no that shortage. part of your life. There's no shortage of Because there's so many that need that. And what would you say to somebody right now, That's listening, and they may think they have an addiction problem or a gambling problem or a drinking problem, but if they admit it, if they actually do something about it, they're afraid things are going to unravel on them. What would you say to them?
1: Look for help. Ask for help. Just talk to someone. AA, NAA, Gamblers Anonymous, they've all got criteria that they can help you determine if you're a hard drinker or if you're an alcoholic, if you're a casual gambler or you're an addicted gambler. And if somebody had grabbed me at some point, even through my bullheadedness, and nipped that in the bud, that would have been very helpful.
0: And that's really important because Christians aren't supposed to have these problems. No. And so they don't get help because if they get help, the church looks at them and goes, something's wrong with you. Yeah.
1: One of the causal roots of all addiction and alcoholism is the tendency to go into isolation. And what you're talking about is the moment where the guys make it, men and women make a decision to either continue to isolate and hide the problem or to open up and talk to someone about it.
0: Rick, I'm going to grab you for one more week because there's more we need to cover because we aren't, we're not even to your conversion yet (laughs) and that's going to be exciting. And so this has been a, a great time again with Rick Loftus who's telling this amazing story, you know, afflictions and trouble, the kind that Rick, is describing today are all a part of everyday life we, we live in a fallen world and sin has wrought death and destruction but we want you to know that jesus christ has defeated death on the cross and he comforts those who suffer in second corinthians 1 3 and 4 paul wrote that blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and god of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, just like Rick's doing right now with men who have walked this journey. And then Paul says, we can comfort them with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So Jesus will never forsake you. He's always with you. He suffered too. He knows what it feels like. Take heart. God is with you. Thanks for joining us on Life Support. You can catch up with us here on Faith Radio. You can hop on the Five Stone Media website or you can check us out at Ridgewood Church at myrwc.org slash life support. Please follow me on Twitter as well. That's at Pastor Paul J. Thanks for being here. See you next week on Life Support.
2: For a video version of this program, log on to the Five Stone Media Facebook page or fivestonemedia.com. This program is a co-production of Five Stone Media and Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota.
0: Thanks for listening to this life support podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at myfaithradio.com. To avoid missing future editions of life support, Subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of life support.